The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Tom. Nice to see you there. You too, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, as usual, thank you. Father, I'd like to begin the program with an email that we received some time ago. Uh, it is a request for you to comment upon this Hearing Voices movement and a bit of background. Uh, this viewer says that it's a worldwide phenomenon that started in the 1980s with a psychiatrist named Marius Romay. Uh, he decided to depart from the standard practice, which utilized psychotropic medication as its cornerstone and that viewed the voices as misfirings in the brain as evidence of brain disorder and as hallucinations with no meanings in the person's life. Uh, she goes on here, gives a few, few more details. Um, he says that his, his conception of voice hearing was from a psychodynamic perspective, a perspective that holds that the voices have meaning based on traumatic past life experiences and have resulted in disassociation of parts of ourselves from our integrated personality parts of ourselves that need to be reconnected. This viewer father says that this movement has grown and has become international. There's an annual World Hearing Voices Congress. And this viewer would like to know, Father, is this possibly part of the diabolical disorientation that Our Lady spoke of? And, and what, is, what is the church's view on this idea of uh, individuals hearing voices? Could this somehow be connected to uh, some sort of demonic influence? And if so, should uh, facilitators of these hearing voices support groups be engaging these? Well, Tom, there are a number of aspects of this. First of all, uh, if the question is, could it be de demonic? Yes, it certainly could be demonic. Um, in psychology, I, I think they relate that to schizophrenia, hearing voices that are inside one's head, but I guess one thinks that they are coming from outside right in the sense that they're not one's own thoughts um, uh, if one hears hears voices that one thinks are his own mind talking to him I mean uh, we talk to ourselves a lot anyway every day but I gather that the idea as, as I say disassociated applies here when one hears these voices as though they were some other entity speaking within our within our brains, brains, within our minds anyway, uh, with uh, voices that do not come through our ears. Um, sometimes they're called auditory hallucinations, right? And uh, they've always been considered to be uh, pathological, some, some pathology involved in them psychologically. Now we have to remember though that there is such a thing as a locution or locution, and this is when uh, those who are saintly souls hear the voice of God speaking to them. It's a very different matter. There's nothing pathological about that. Um, the priests have just been reading the account of the young Samuel, who became the last great judge of Israel, and uh, he did hear the voice of God speaking to him, calling to him one night, 
And uh, he did answer. At first, he did not know whose voice it was. He went to the high priest, Haley, saying, Haley, saying, I'm here because you called me. And Haley kept telling him, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Until Haley realized what was happening and told told young Samuel, when he hears the voice, if he hears the voice again, calling him and awakening him in the middle of the night, he should say, uh, thy servant is here, Lord, I, I listen, you know, I'm listening or whatever, I hear what you, what you say. And then uh, God spoke to Heli, to uh, Samuel, a prophecy, which Heli the next morning demanded that Samuel tell him. Now this was a case of God himself speaking within the mind of young Samuel, what it is he wanted him to hear. In the New Testament, we have the very famous example of St. Joan of Arc, who again heard, heard the voice of God, heard the voice of uh, various saints speaking to her and directing her as to what God's will was, was for her. So uh, our minds are such, Tom, that we have the power of imagination. And through the power of imagination, we can, and even through the power of what, what the philosophers call the common sense, which ties all of our sight and our hearing and our feeling and all that together, um, that uh, it is possible for a, um, another entity that is naturally superior to us to actually influence the imagination and impress uh, sounds and sights on our minds. But uh, this can be done also by uh, not only God, that is angels and his saints, it can be done also by fallen angels. So it can be demonic. And this is exactly why St. Paul says we must test spirits. We must not take everything as though it were from God. In fact, the church's understanding, and when it comes down to private revelations to individuals who see and hear things that are preternatural or supernatural, the church's first step is to say no, is to question them and to, and to actually assume that they are not from heaven, but to require that they be proven to be from God. Um, that is the case with every private revelation in the history of the church. The church's default position on that is to presume that they are not accurate. They are not false. They are not true because they can come from demonic influence and they can also come from some pathological condition of the mind and the body, the metabolism, right? So the church, following St. Paul's admonition, prove every spirit, right? Do not assume that they are from God. Do not assume that every thought you have is good because it's your thought, right? This is part of the problem that teenagers have, I think. Until they gain wisdom and mature, they think just because they have a thought, it must be good. <clears throat> but that is uh, the result of immaturity. We've learned that not all of our thoughts are good just because they're ours. The church has this understanding right from the start that just because someone has or claims to have some kind of unusual experience of mind, hearing voices, seeing sights, whatever it might be, 
um, some word of prophecy or whatever that um, it must be from God or it must be wisdom speaking there because uh, the church knows that the devil apes God. Even St. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 goes into the gifts that are what we call the charisms, which are the special, special gifts of God, speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and making prophecies and so on. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians tells us about that. St. Paul goes into talking about these things. He doesn't say they're bad things, but he says that they are the inferior gifts. St. Gregory the Great says that these gifts are not given for the sanctification of the soul. They are given um, for the sake of, of bringing unbelievers to the faith. They're given for the benefit of those who don't have the faith, to, uh, to encourage them to believe the faith. But um, these, these so-called signs and wonders, miracles that I performed uh, as motives of belief for those who don't have it. But God does not have to prove himself by granting speaking in tongues and interpretations and prophecies to those who have faith. As uh, St. Thomas said, uh, that unless he was able to put his fingers into the holes in the hands of our Lord and his hand into our Lord's son, he would not believe. And our Lord later said to him, Blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. We don't need signs and wonders. Our Lord says a wicked and perverse generation demands signs and wonders. But the only, the only sign that would be given them was the sign of the resurrection, and they wouldn't accept that. So we have to be very careful about this in presuming that if there are going to be these voices, uh, we do not start with the idea that they come from God. That has to be established and proven not only to us personally, it would have to be proven to the magisterium of the church. Nowadays, of course, we cannot, that, that has been seized and is now in the control of the modernists in the sense that they've seized the positions or the offices of the church uh, by stealth and uh, moral and spiritual violence. So again, we, we cannot listen to them. We know what voice is coming from them and through them right now. It is not the voice of Christ. So um, our, our position, nonetheless, as Catholics, still remains the same, that until these things can be verified as coming from God, they're either coming from the, the individual as a pathological condition, or they're coming from Satan, or one of his henchmen, right? And uh, these are the two possibilities that we look at. Now, how would we distinguish between the two? Right? Well, this, um, I, I gather that there is some indication here that, that there is some thought some of these voices might come from Satan, right? And... Um, <clears throat> That would be actually rather obvious if they are suggesting things that are immoral or contrary to faith. If they are saying things that are immoral, contrary to faith, blasphemous, uh, they, would, they would be satanic. They would be under satanic influence. And um, either directly or indirectly. Um, but if somebody is having... I mean, if some thoughts are coming to mind suggesting suicide and things like that, things that are immoral, one can identify the origin of those thoughts. 
they are from the serpent. They are from Old Scratch. They're from Beelzebub. They're from Lucifer. They're from all the you know, powers of hell are suggesting these evil things. And um, possibly in collusion with the person's weakness and desire to escape the hardships of life or whatever else, um, these, these voices, these satanic voices, can even suggest to a person, it is virtuous to you to want to end your life uh, because then you can be with God, right? Or whatever. But what they're really doing, these voices from Satan, are really saying, um, we know your motivation is not uh, love for God, but weakness and love for yourself to have, want to escape the hardships of life, which is not a worthy motive, of course. And uh, the devil is basically saying, uh, you know, end your life and cast yourself into my arms. I'm waiting for you. As though you were to say to the devil, take me, I'm yours. One must resist the, the, those voices absolutely. And the most important way to resist them is to refuse to allow oneself to even consider them. To immediately reject them, very vehemently, very forcefully, very decisively, and say, I will not even listen to you, I will not listen to this. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, as far as a pathological condition, to get more to this, this point now, it sounds to me, Ron, that the person is saying this Rome person, is that how you spell it? I believe R-O-M-M-E. R-O-M-M-E, okay. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> if this Rome, uh, Rome guy, whoever he was, the psychiatrist, uh, suggests that these voices are sounding in people's heads, because of a pathological condition resulting from past traumatic experiences, and the voices are symptomatic of that, and the voices, therefore, uh, dealing with those voices in a certain way without psychotropic drugs, right? Without drugs, right. just kind of psychologically, interiorly dealing with them somehow. Um, I gather you're saying they're like support groups all over the place. There's right. a network of people who talk about their voices with each other right. and kind of consult each other about their voices and what they're hearing and so on. And there, there's a facilitator of, of these groups, and um, she gives a few examples of the, of the strategies that they teach in these groups for those who are involved uh, in this hearing voices movement. And one of the strategies that they teach here is to, uh, to help people take back power and it involves encouraging them to speak to their voices and to set boundaries with them in a compassionate or at least assertive rather than aggressive manner. And another technique involves the facilitator speaking directly with the voice rather than speaking with the person who hears the voice. The facilitator speaking with the voice. Directly speaking with the voice rather than the person hearing the voice. Yes. How does the facilitator speak to the voice if the facilitator doesn't hear the voice? Is the facilitator trying to get into the head of the person and to hear the voice? Or is the person going into a trance and letting the voice talk? Nice. This, is, this is extremely dangerous. This is spiritually um, dangerous and potentially suicidal. Okay, This is actually kind of an invitation to uh, invoking something truly dynamic. Demonic. You know, the whole idea of channeling, 
You know, it is demonic. It's the channeling some spirit through a person to like take over, basically saying, uh, take possession of me, right, physically and speak through me. And, um, and it, it sounds like it's awfully close to that kind of thing. Um, any of this, the church would absolutely condemn, saying it is, it is approaching the level of uh, just out and out uh, Satanism by any other name. Father, what, what would the church recommend, though? What if, uh, say, there, there's someone who works in this field and they are dealing with a patient who has this, this mm. problem of hearing, hearing voices or schizophrenia, whatever it may be. How, how, can, uh, how can someone in this medical field uh, work with a patient like that? What, what, yeah, well, I, I am not uh, one who treats people with schizophrenia, mm. certainly not to treat them with drugs. So right. I've known people who claim to hear these voices. Of course, I can't hear them and you can't hear them if they hear them. And I, I dare say that the one who doesn't have the condition might not be able to, exp to really know what the other person is actually hearing in their heads. Um, I have certain suspicions, um, but they're only suspicions of my own that somehow in the course of the years, uh, the individual has been sort of working with their imagination in such a way that their imaginations are kind of running wild and suggesting things. I mean, we know there's such a thing as diabolical obsession, not diabolical oppression, that's something else, not diabolical possession, that's something else, but diabolical oppression where Satan actually goes and directly impresses thoughts, and, uh, sounds, visions um, in, the mind, in, the, in the imagination of the person. And that is a great cross. In some cases, that is even more of a cross than diabolical oppression. For example, when he picks a person up and throws them to the stairs or scratches them up or whatever. That, that has to do with the body. In some cases, I think it could even be, be worse than diabolical uh, possession. Although some would argue, I suppose, that diabolical obsession comes with and is part of diabolical possession. But nonetheless, the, the obsession part is where, the, you know, even when one is praying, he's got these thoughts coming to his mind all the time. Now, does it, does it have to be? Let's say, let's say, take the case of a person who has that problem. They begin to pray and they start having all of these evil thoughts come to their mind. Could be impure thoughts, could be blasphemous thoughts, could be any number of things, right? Sounds of uh, impurities or obscenities or whatever. Well, you know, one question that I would have would be, well, this has been going on for a while. Usually when you talk to people, they say, yes, this didn't just start yesterday. And if you ask them, as I have on occasion, not often I have, I kind of did this, but the times that I have, well, when these thoughts, when you can remember these thoughts first coming to you, what did you do? Oh, I was horrified, of course. I, you know, it, it, it invaded my imagination and hit with such force that I, that's all I could think about was, oh my goodness, what, are you, what have you thought? What are you doing? You're praying and you're thinking these evil things. How evil you must be. And I thought, well, do you, did it occur to you at the time that by, by obsessing about it, you were actually making, giving it power? You were driving it deeper into your imagination. You were intensifying the thought in your own mind by your reaction. So that you might even be priming yourself, as it were, for the next time you go to pray, that's what comes back. Because now you're associating this 
with the act of praying. And if you have an evil thought, like even an impure thought while praying, and you react so horrified to it, rather than simply dismissing it and saying, that's like a fly in the room, I just brush it away, it is not my thought. You know, like Satan is the Lord of the flies, and that the flies probably say, get out of here, leave me alone. This is not my thought, this is your thought. I'm not going to let this in my mind or my imagination. No matter how, you know how it is with a pesky fly, it keeps coming around, you just keep brushing it away, right? You do not get out a cannon and go after it with, uh, you know, you don't get after the fly with a shotgun, right? Um, Although there, there, there actually is a, a German expression about that called overkill, but uh, you know we, we talk about beating a dead horse. The Germans talk about uh, uh, what is it? Mit Kanaren nach 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 what is the expression? Spatzen, schießen uh, to shoot sparrows with a with a cannon, a, a form of uh, overkill. You know, but if one does that, when these ideas come into the mind, they they they. they react in such a way that it is overkill. They're just intensifying that thought and more or less making that, forging that association between what they're doing, like praying, for example, most importantly, and these evil thoughts. And they can be setting themselves up for that. So what Satan does, he introduces one temptation and they turn it into a million temptations. Because instead of just simply brushing it away, saying no, no. All Satan wants is their attention. And as long as it just comes into their imagination, it hasn't gotten into their intellect, it hasn't gotten into their will. It's not a matter of intellectual truth, it's not a matter of, of willful, willing law, truth, of goodness and love. It's only on the level of the imagination. He wants to get through the imagination to the intellect and the will. But he can only do that if we let him. And we let him do that when we willingly give our attention to the evil thought that he's inserted in our imaginations, rather than just brushing them away and saying no. Uh, and that's what people do. So I, I wonder sometimes that people who get into this, what looks like diabolical obsession, have themselves actually opened the door and escorted Satan, or at least his thoughts, into their minds, giving it a special place at the table and, of course, that guest never leaves, you know. Um, but there is, nonetheless, beyond that, I mean, even without that, there is a diabolical obsession where Satan just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering away. And, of course, the solution is simply to keep brushing away, brushing away, because he has no more power over us than we're willing to give him. Um, but sometimes out of fatigue, we might give in or just give up because it takes a lot of energy you know, to keep. You, you have even like a 10-ton elephant pressing, pressing against you, and it's kind of hard to keep resisting that, and some people just plain give up. But if, if he keeps on doing that, then what you have to do, if he's not coming after you like the fly in the room, if he's coming after you like the elephant in the room, then you have to enlist St. Michael the Archangel. Then you have to say, okay, I'm going to need some help in pushing him back here. Because he's not taking no for an answer. And so I have to start praying to pray to St. Michael the Archangel and say, St. Michael the Archangel, push him back where he belongs. Get him off of me. 
And you keep praying to St. Michael the Archangel and we are very, very determined and very, very aware of the fact that St. Michael the Archangel is very much aware of what you're saying and very much aware of what you need and what you're asking for. And he will put his angelic shoulder to that door and he will not let that open in that room. He will, he will stand mightily and he will keep that thing from, from uh, overwhelming you. Um, I fear that this is the kind of thing that invites Satan, uh, that, that courts his diabolical obsession. And uh, I'd, I'd be very, very, very wary of this. Sure. Father, in the, the, uh, the book Self-Abandonment to Divine Providence, he speaks uh, something very similar to what you're saying here in regards to temptations or distractions during prayers or whatever it may be. And he gives the analogy of, of rather than, than using some violent methods of, of fighting back and, and, and disturbing your interior peace, of just simply letting these these uh, distractions, these temptations drop like a stone would drop into mm -hmm. the ocean. Mm -hmm. Rather than, than fighting it so violently, just, mm -hmm. just let it go. Just ignore it, brush it away like you said. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a very effective uh, method in, mm -hmm. in, in any with any sort of temptation. Right, exactly, yeah. I mean, what would you do if a lion flew in your mouth? You'd spit it out right away, you know. And uh, you wouldn't say, well, what does it taste like? Gee, I wonder, you know. <laughs> um, you'd spit it out right away, it'd be reflex, right? And um, so it is with those things. I mean, even, even if, a, if a thought like that occurs to one, if they just, that's a very hum humbling thing. It can be humiliating, but if it's more humbling, saying, well, you know, that's, yeah, I've, I've got a pretty active imagination, and it can, it can go all kind of stupid ways. But if one tells oneself, that's a stupid thing to think. You know, if one just tells oneself what a stupid thought that is, you know, that's, that's, that's not only, you know, humbling oneself, thinking, you know, boy, that's really dumb, why am I thinking that, you know? But it also is kind of humiliating to Satan, to, if, if that came from Satan. And you're basically saying, well, that's a stupid thing to say. You know, that's like smacking him right in, the, right in the face. That's like pulling his beard. That's like yanking his tail, you know. That's like taking his pitchfork and poking him with it. Uh, saying, what a stupid thought. He hates to be mocked. He hates to be mocked. Right? That's why he insisted on mocking our Lord so awfully. Because he knows, I mean, it really, it, is, it just drives him wild to be mocked because of his pride. And uh, he thought that that was the most uh, vicious thing he could do to our Lord is mock him. And look at how our Lord accepted that mockery. And that just made Satan even go wilder. Like, what's wrong with him? <laughs> Uh, he doesn't think like I do, and that's exactly right. And the problem is that Satan doesn't think like God does. And that's why mocking him is just, it's just horrible for him. I mean, during exorcisms, he, he just can't stand to be mocked. And that's anyone like him, anyone like him on earth, you know, again, the same way. They just cannot stand ridicule. It's humiliating and uh, so offensive. So anyway, as I say, I mean, if you're praying and a, and a thought like that comes in that is so just off the wall and so uh, not only ridiculous but even even obscene, all the more reason to just say that is that's so stupid. You know, why why would such a thing even occur to me um, unless I had some you know. I'm just dust and ashes. I mean, I, I accept that. I don't fight it I, in the sense that I, I accept the fact that I am. I don't try to deny it. And 
I might say to God, oh, Lord, what can we expect from dust and ashes? And I move on, and I go on, and I go back to the mystery of the rosary that I'm praying, for example. And, and I go back to it with a humbler soul and a better prayer. And Satan goes away uh, rubbing his nose like he just got socked and called stupid, his stupid ideas. So anyway, but that's interesting you'd point that out, uh, Self-Abandonment to Divine Providence by Don Kassad. So that's, that's a very good, that's an excellent book to read. Yes. Fine. More than once, actually, yes, over and over again. So you obviously have read it more than once. That's fine. All right, well, Father, let's move on to another email. This is from a viewer who is wondering how exactly you justify being a traditional Catholic with the infallibility of the Pope. Do you not believe that the Second Vatican Council, which just reaffirmed Catholic teaching, was infallible? If so, how does that make sense if you believe in the infallibility of the Pope? Luther, Arius, and others really just disagreed with the Pope on matters, on matters and left the faith because of that. Most of them really believed that they were just teaching true Catholicism. What makes you any different? What makes this situation different? Well, Tom, I smile at that, and I don't mean to smile condescendingly, because it's not a bad question at all, but it's a question we've addressed over and over and over again That's right. for years, for the last 50 years, literally for the last 50 years since Vatican II, we have been addressing that question about being traditional Catholics. Now, maybe this good soul is just new to all this, I don't know. But, you know, we, we can direct them to so much um, information, right? Um, let, let me just uh, try to respond briefly, okay? And again, you know, it, I might sound a bit condescending. I don't mean to be, because it is really a very important question. You know? It's just that so much has already been said about it. And um, we'd like people to actually... Uh, look at the information, you know, and go back and see what has actually been dealt with so many, many times in the past. But in any case, if this one dear viewer of ours is asking that question, then might, she might, or he might represent a hundred or a thousand other viewers, for all we know, right? We can't forget that either. We're kind of new to the situation. And especially a young person who comes on board, when I say young, anybody under 40 right now, I consider young. But um, uh, who's just kind of getting the idea there is a traditional effort, right? That there are traditional Catholics even left. Maybe they didn't even know it a year ago or six months ago. Now, we just say this. Look, what we're doing is because of the infallibility of the Pope, because of the authority of the papacy. We are upholding the authority and the dignity of the papacy, whereas the Novus Ordo Popes are tearing it down. They're destroying the entire concept of the papacy, especially Francis, is making a mockery of the very idea of the papacy, saying that everything he says is magisterium. No. And uh, saying things that are manifestly contrary to the perennial teaching of the Catholic Church and insisting that everyone has to accept it. This is an, a mockery of the papacy. It is not the voice of the papacy. It is not the voice of, the Christ, of Christ. It contradicts our Lord. It contradicts the constant teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, the Church has always has told us and has, has believed that uh, the Vicar of Christ on earth, uh, Bishop of Rome, is infallible when speaking in matters of faith and morals ex cathedra. 
and uh, promulgating this, okay, in such a way that it can be known that this is promulgated ex cathedra and therefore infallibly, okay. But uh, the church has also told us that it is that there is not only charism of infallibility, but also the charism of indefectibility in the church. So the church cannot be substantially changed from what Christ established her to be, or what she has ever been in the past. And this is what the modernists are out to do. I'm not making that up. Pope Pius X made it very clear a hundred years ago. It is in Circle Pascendi that the modernists were in the heart and the veins of the church. They were the most dangerous enemies the church has ever faced. And their objective is not to deny a dogma of faith. Their objective is to destroy the very concept of what faith is and turn it into an experience of something called the divine. Right? To make faith more of an experience than actually an intellectual ascent to truth, divinely revealed truth. This is what the modernists have done. Pope Pius X warned us that it was in their, on their agenda and that they could lay waste the church with these doctrines of theirs, and that's exactly what they've done. So uh, rather than denying the papacy, we are actually upholding it against the enemies of the church, the modernists. We are, rather than denying people infallibility, we're upholding the whole idea of dogma. Francis has already said he doesn't like the idea of dogma. What more does one need if one has any concept of what Catholicism really is? Dogma is so restrictive. It's not fluid. It doesn't evolve as it should. Right? That's what Francis has objected to. This is not the voice of a Catholic pope talking like that. Um, this is in flat contradictions to what the, the pope is, uh, popes of the church have always taught, what Christ has taught. And so it is a matter of being faithful to the, what the church has always been, not faithful to the modernist church, the new order church, as they themselves have called it, the Novus Ordo. And um, so this is what we have to do if we want to be Catholic. This is what we have to do now. Um, what is what is the problem here is that people really don't understand the church's infallibility about the papacy. They don't understand the church's teaching of the papacy and what it is. They don't understand the office and its charisms of infallibility and the authority of magisterium. They don't understand that. They just uh, almost fall into the Protestant trap, trap of papalatry, thinking that the Pope actually replaces Christ rather than is simply the vicar of Christ. They don't know the church's teachings about um, when popes go bad. They don't even think that popes can go bad, perhaps. Uh, that popes can speak against the faith. That popes can believe heresy. But in fact, popes have believed heresy. Popes have been excommunicated. Even after their death, they've been excommunicated by the church, by subsequent popes, for failing to defend the church. There's just a lot of understandable ignorance of people. But what I want this, this good soul to do, who had the, the goodness and maybe the courage to send in a question, I'd like them to begin researching. I'd like them to begin researching um, their Catholic history and beginning to understand because only from the, the history of the church can you understand her tradition, the voice of her tradition. And when you understand the voice of, of Catholic tradition, you can understand what's happening right now. You can understand why Pope Pius IX ordered the 
document captured in the Masonic lodges in the early 1800s to be published so the Catholic people would know the Masons were planning on infiltrating the church and taking control of the papacy. If you uh, study the history of the church and you understand her tradition, you can understand the voice of St. Pius X warning the church about modernism. And understanding that, then you hear the voice of John the Twenty-Third talking about aggiornamento, updating the church and bringing her into the modern world and making her relevant to the modern world, and you recognize that's modernism. If you don't know any of this, you don't recognize that voice. And you can find yourself following very much the wrong voice, in this case, Francis, and his minions, unfortunately, who... Um, who are trying to make his voice, as it were, um, well, they're, they're using him to further a, a, a non, not only a non-Catholic faith, using him and his voice as uh, the, the authority to, uh, to bring into more and more power over the minds of, of, of credulous people. A, not an anti-Catholic, the anti-Catholic faith of modernism. Okay. Um, I would suggest that our, our good friend go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and read what St. Paul tells us there about the coming of the Antichrist and what has to happen before the Antichrist appears and how there has to be a great apostasy and falling away from the faith. I would suggest that he go to the book of the Apocalypse, what they now call the book of Revelation, and read about, I think it's in chapter 8, about the, the, the lamb's horn that speaks and trumpets the, the authority of the beast, right, throughout the world and makes men, leads men to worship the beast. Hey, <clears throat> look at this. It's just appeared. Top Vatican cardinal to join elite globalists in secretive Bilderberg meeting. This is today's, one of today's headlines in LifeSite News. And here's Crooks Now, C-R-U-X-N-O-W dot com. Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Parolin is his name, whom they're grooming to be the successor of Francis. Vatican Secretary of State attending elite Bilderberg meeting. Now, I would, I would guess, I would hope, <clears throat> that virtually everyone who is listening to this program now knows what we mean when we talk about the Bilderbergs. This elitist group of world movers and shakers who are busy constructing the new world order in defiance of Almighty God, the new world order which is meant to uh, be flatly in contradiction with the New Testament, which they reject, the New Testament and the blood of Christ, they want to build a new world order in defiance of that New Testament. <clears throat> And this is what this Bilderberg group is all about. And now they've invited the Vatican Secretary of State to join them. This is a milestone. This, this is a milestone in the furthering of the modernist, uh, Masonic, satanic agenda to create a new world order. And uh, this is uh, Francis's Secretary of State, Parolin, and this is the man who they claim that they're they're actually preparing to, to fill in for Francis when he says something about within the year or so he thinks he'll resign. Mm -hmm. Okay? So he's going to be one of the Bilderbergs, I, I guess. Invited. 
formally invited to attend their meeting. And evidently not only listen, but to take, uh, I would assume, active part. And even as, as a matter of fact, you know, I'd have to go through the list of those who attend the Bilderberg meeting. I wonder if there is any actively serving president or prime minister of any nation on the face of the earth that actually takes part in any of those meetings. I don't know that there are. There are, there are former presidents and prime ministers, I'm sure, who are involved in these meetings. I don't know if there's any active uh, reigning president or, or prime minister. This would be very interesting if this is the first active, let's say, secretary of state of an actual serving government because the Vatican City State is an actual nation unto itself. But the Secretary of State of the, of the Church being invited to the Bilderberg meeting after what Francis has said, all of his collusion with all the enemies of the Church, even now colluding with China, Communist China, and Francis is head of uh, some archbishop who's head of the social doctrine of the Church and so on, saying that China is the, is the, perfect, the most perfect example of one who follows the social doctrine of the Catholic Church with its abortion policy and all the rest. This is, this is absolutely ludicrous. It would be hysterically funny if it weren't so horrible. If it weren't so demonic. Talk about a, di a diabolical illusion or a diabolical delusion. And a diabolical delusion can only come because of a, di a diabolical deception. And that's what's coming from the Vatican right now. And this cardinal parallel is a big part of that. So, I mean, our, our writer here... Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming is, is moved by, by very good will and is asking these questions honestly, not just to challenge. You know? But even if he's writing just to challenge and he really doesn't really want an answer, I would still suggest that he begin to look into some things. He begin to research more deeply because he knows just enough not to know the answer to these questions. <laughs> but if he... He doesn't have to depend on me to give him the answers. He can find those answers uh, if he's willing to do the research. All right. Father, a question about Francis, surprisingly. Oh, dear. How do you understand Father Jenkins when he says that the papacy of Francis is doubtful, and yet he says not to ignore what he says or does? In one episode, Father says that wouldn't be right. Since he is the Pope of the modernist Novus Ordo, but not the Roman Catholic religion, why does Father seem to give him the benefit of the doubts at times? Don't ignore what he says. Mm -hmm. If he's interpreting what I'm saying is, listen and follow what he says, he, he missed the point. Is this the same writer? No, Father. Oh, okay. No, I'm saying don't ignore what he says because, I mean, you listen to Francis, you're hearing the voice of modernist uh, number one, um, El Capitan. You're, looking, you're listening to the... Uh, the voice of the leader of the modernists, who's basically sort of like the lead, the lead starling in, in the group. It's, you know, they're all going to follow in this great swarm. Um, so Francis's voice is very indicative in terms of where the modernists are going with us now, where the leftists, where the progressives, where the, the Masons and the, all the rest of them, the Marxists and so on, are leading us now. So listening to Francis's voice is very important in the sense of uh, 
understanding what what the new uh, party line is, as it were. Um, when we when we have an, an enemy to our country, we have to listen very carefully to what he's saying. Not that we take it to heart and listen and, and believe it, but because that that gives us. We have to take it and analyze it and understand it, right? Um, and so it is with Francis spiritually. When we hear what, when we do pay attention to what he's saying, we actually are listening to an enemy of the Catholic faith, a premier enemy of the Catholic faith, saying, now this is where we're going to go. This is what we have to attack now. And that to me means this is what we have to defend. We have to, there are souls out there who can be taken in by this subterfuge of a man like Francis. And we have to counteract it by giving the truth of the faith so that people understand that what he's saying is not, not true. That's why I think we have to listen carefully and take seriously what he's saying, <clears throat> not because it's the truth, but because it isn't. <coughs> and people need the truth to immunize themselves, to defend themselves against the error and there are a lot of people who don't have uh, access to, already access to the truth to enable them to defend their, themselves, their minds, their souls against what, what Francis is saying and that his bishops. We're trying here to, to uh, provide one, one resource that people can use to defend themselves and their loved ones against the deceits of the enemy there. Um, so that's why I say we should pay attention and, uh, and listen carefully so we can, as St. Paul says, discern spirits, as it were, but not because we have any illusions as to whether Francis speaks as a Catholic pope or not, because he does not speak as a Catholic pope. Um, now, I don't know if that really answers the question, but that's I think so. what I understand the question to be. What's the last part again? Uh, since Francis is the Pope of the modernist Novus Sordo, but not the Roman Catholic religion, why does Father seem to give him the benefit of the doubt at times? But he doesn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, the, the interesting word he says is seems. Mm -hmm. He seems to give him the benefit of the doubt at times. And I guess I'm just kind of wondering what, what seems to our writer to be yeah. giving him the benefit of the doubt, because I'm not aware of giving Francis the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'd like to know what he means by that. All right. All right, well, Father, uh, final question, if we can here. Do people of other faiths receive grace from God by belief in those faiths, such as Judaism or Islam? Why would people be pulled to these faiths? First of all, no. <laughs> okay. People do not receive grace from God because they believe in wrong faiths. Okay, insofar as they believe in false faiths, they believe in false Christs, okay? They reject Jesus Christ insofar as they do not believe the truth that he's revealed. So, no, God does not give grace to people because they believe errors about him. St. Thomas Aquinas made it very clear that blasphemy is the worst intellectual sin. Because blasphemy attributes to God something that is not true about him, or denies about God something that is true about him. Now, because God is all truth and all goodness, 
to attribute something to him that is not right, that doesn't apply, is to attribute to him something bad or something false. That's a great insult to God. To, because God is all truth and all goodness, to deny something that is true of him, on the other hand, is to detract from him and to take away, as it were, from the infinite truth and goodness that God is. Either way, by attributing to him something that is not true or denying something about him that is true, it's blasphemy. And it is an insult to God. An insult to God. Now, false religions all do that. So they all are blasphemies, okay? God does not give people grace for blasphemies. Now, one might say, well, if they believe mistakenly, because this is what they've been taught and they haven't really, they don't know any better, um, well, that wouldn't that be different? No, it's not different, because God still would not give them grace for even with um, invincible ignorance at the moment, believing blasphemy. God does not give grace for believing blasphemy. However, one may or may not be responsible for it. There's no merit to believing blasphemy. However, innocently, one may believe it, if there is, if it's possible. But God would give grace because he sees that that soul has a certain innocence in his belief in the sense that he wants the truth and maybe he's laboring under a very bad misconception or false teaching or maybe that soul has some certain natural virtues, okay? Which in God's hands can be moved to accept the supernatural grace of faith. So if God gives grace, grace to the soul, he doesn't give it because of the individual's false beliefs. He gives it in spite of their false beliefs. He gives it for the sake of rescuing them from their false beliefs. That's his motive. It's his mercy, wanting to rescue a soul from false beliefs. Now, what we, we must also say that God gives us sufficient grace to everyone. Um, he gives sufficient grace to the communist to recognize the error of his ways. He gives sufficient grace to the Marxist, the socialist. I mean, they're all basically the same formula. He gives sufficient grace to those who believe falsehoods and blasphemies about him. He does give grace because he wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live, quote-unquote. Our Lord said that. But, you know, apparently the vast majority of them simply refuse to cooperate with the grace that God gives them. So, but God can give sufficient grace, but also efficacious grace, to certain souls who are, let's say, more receptive to him, either because they have a certain natural humility or something, which doesn't put up the obstacles that other souls do. And uh, I mean, all souls put up obstacles to God's grace, but there are some that resist mightily with great pride. So others might have not a, more of a natural aptitude. There's no such thing as a natural aptitude for grace. Others might have not a more of a natural openness to grace, but only the fact that they have within themselves naturally original sin and all the vices that come from original sin and all the fomes peccati. But also, for whatever reason, that they have put up less resistance 
for the grace of God. And um, purely passively, that would render them more receptive or grace more receptible to them, okay? I hope I'm not using lang misleading language here, but I'm just saying that God can accomplish with them, with one soul, what he might not accomplish with another. But it would not be because of their false beliefs, it would be in spite of their false beliefs, and purely because of his mercy, that he would give them the grace to see the error of their, of their misbelief and come to want to know the truth and embrace it. The problem is, again, the obstacles are there. You know, people who are being led by God to the truth and out of the darkness of error start thinking, gee, what are the consequences of my believing? You know, what are the consequences of my believing the traditional Catholic faith? the Blessed Sacrament, the Mass, and so on. The consequence of all these things would be, who, not eating meat on Friday and having to go to family gatherings, right? Uh, we got a bar mitzvah coming up, right? Or whatever, right? They're going to be serving, uh, not pork, I suppose. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and uh, I'm going to have to be kind of standing out, you know, and going to be ostracized by my friends, if I'm, a, if I'm a Muslim, I might even be chased down the street with my father firing a handgun trying to kill me, as happened to um, uh, Mark Gabriel, right? Uh, that is not his Muslim name, but a convert who relates in his books about his conversion and running down the street with his father chased him with a handgun, shooting him, running down the street trying to kill him. Uh, I mean, there, there's a certain price to pay for accepting faith, you know, real faith. Um, so, um, you know, one has to overcome all those obstacles. But those who are willing to cooperate with the grace of God, they, they can find their way. But it's God, by the power of the Holy Ghost, leading them. They're not just kind of stumbling in the dark and discover truth opening up before them. Uh, God has to, to lead them out of the darkness they're in. Um, so... Anyway, uh, darkness does not produce light. God has to send the light into the darkness. Sounds good. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thank you also for your time and effort, and uh, I appreciate your new look. <laughs> the hot summer months are here, so it's <laughs> time to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. drop the fur and... It's an, easy, it's an easy, quick way to lose a couple pounds too. Well, that, no harm in that. I wish I could. I wish I could follow that example, but it doesn't help me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll good. have to resort to other methods. I guess. Yes, well, yes, well. Thank you, Father. Uh, God bless you, Tim, yep. and all of our listeners too. Sure. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.